0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8:55 AM, Melbourne, Australia.
1: Step three is finding there's a tactic
0: when everyone believes it could be true.
1: That
2: if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can
3: change.
0: Hello, listeners. Uh, you're with the Beyond Zero Emissions, the cli- uh, Climate Change, where we look at everything involved in how the climate is changing. Uh, this, this week, we have part two of our creature feature, where we're focusing in on the solutions that individuals in our community are doing to try and mitigate the threat to the, cl- the cl- changing climate, which is happening right now, has to the individual, uh, Australian species around uh, around the country and particularly in uh, along the east coast. Um, I'm joined here with Vivian Langford, um, who's who's our usual host, and we were just going to chat very quickly about the the things that we've learned um, from this fairly this this topic of how Australian spe- wildlife is is affected by climate change.
2: Vivian.
4: Well, I've learned that uh, some animals are pollinators and I'm very much a city person. So I think I've had my ears open for services, these things they called ecosystem service. Now, I know that sounds very crass. I know that's not what nature's there for. It's there for itself. But in a way, I pricked up my ears with a couple of these scientists who are really working very hard to save species. We don't usually talk to these sort of species uh, specialists. Like we had a guy in England, uh, Professor Jean-Marc Hero, mm-hmm. Hero who who's amphibian specialist and he said oh we're having an amphibians conference in the UK but hardly anyone's speaking about climate change because we're just so concerned about the survival of amphibians and then he told us I said you know what they're for and you'll hear tonight he says oh you know for insect control and climate change is bringing more insects they really thrive in the hot weather mosquitoes for example mosquito-borne diseases like Zika virus you know you've all heard about that and he said without the amphibians to counteract and the reptiles you know up a lot of insects we'd have a lot more of them so I I was tuned in to really maybe people think well why should you save all these species there's so many different species they can't all be necessary but from the scientists we spoke to they are necessary it's all this interaction between them there was also a guy flying foxes and he told us about the flying foxes they they suck the nectar out of gum tree blossoms, mm-hmm. and as they brush up against them, the fur on the front of a flying fox, you know, it's all furry, they, it, it's covered with pollen, and then they fly off and pollinate more trees. Well, if you're logging and destroying um, habitat everywhere, land clearing, as we heard in an earlier program, too much land clearing means they've got nothing to eat and they're starving, and we heard the vet last week telling us about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it was, uh, it, bringing it back to what you said before, which is about how it, the the lack of coverage that this this topic is getting in the mainstream media mm. oh, to offset that we we also spoke to that uh, that uh, Tim Pearson, who we'll be listening t- t- to uh, a little bit later, yeah. but his kind of real grassroots, this this work that a lot of people in the community are doing yeah. and not re- really hard work, but not really getting any coverage or, or much help or any kind of acknowledgement for it.
4: So well, listeners, you might like to look up the name Tim Pearson. I think he calls himself the Batman mm-hmm. and he's got a wonderful YouTube. He's really funny yeah. and he he explains it. He just loves these bats oh, and um, I love them too after he told me all about it and i think that's what i got from doing this work that we got a whole different attitude to climate change as it's affecting these species and the people who are on their side the advocates the other one that i really liked i was thinking where are the solutions who's doing the big work national parks we know national parks we've keep increasing those that's good marine national parks that's good but there are other people doing it in the private sector on private properties and there's one we're going to talk to john kanowski he's a scientist with the australian wildlife conservancy and they've got three billion hectares under management and they're keeping out the feral pests and so we'll hear about that and i think that was very inspiring i didn't know anything about that and you listeners can get involved in that if you're at all scientific Uh, they've got a lot of people doing uh, phds or university students up there in all these northern northern territory and northern uh, kimberley area western australia and people do lots of research there and they they're very rigorous and so you can get a Good step up in your career, I think, by working with the australian Wildlife Conservancy
0: yeah and you're, we're looking at well in terms of conservation, that is really the operative word of this this program, and we're, we're our first guest who's who's professor mackey he 's looking at a conservation corridor which runs the whole length of um, of the east coast. And I didn't even know that it existed. That was something where I looked. At, I, I did research for this, and I found a story from 2010, mm. and then no other coverage of it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really fascinating to know that there's these people out there, and they, they're they're putting in all these hard yards, and they're getting getting results, but you don't hear anything about it
4: i think we've always had environmentalism as a sort of separate sector of society mm. and envi- environmentalists to these sort of special people who hug trees or whatever but it's not like that now now it's all of us in the same boat climate change is putting us all even people living in call, tall concrete towers of the city also need mm. as i said the ecosystem service we all need our food to be pollinated we all need our um land to be protected so uh, this is this is why we have to see these eco uh, get behind these corridors, but as we know beyond zero 's research was all about the way the land sector where the hard parts are, and it's land clearing. Definitely, I came through yep. that loud and clear. Habitat is land clearing. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. and there's a twofold, there's a twofold effect there where you're clearing land, you're also getting rid of habitats for these creatures, but you're destroying <laughs> carbon sinks as well. That's so right. So first up, uh, we'll talk to Professor Brendan Mackey of Griffith University, and um, he'll talk to about the Conservation Corridor.
4: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
0: In a 2010 report commissioned by the New South Wales Department of Environment, Climate Change and Water, was published and it recommended the establishment of a conservation corridor spanning... 2,800 kilometres down the east coast of Australia. This corridor would allow Australian wildlife to move south as the climate warmed and was vital to the survival of many Australian species. Um, The author of that report is Griffith University's Brendan Mackey, who we are very lucky to have with us right now. Uh, Professor Mackey of the School of Environment investigates how uh, the nexus between sustainable development and climate change and interactions between climate change, biodiversity and land land and use. Professor Mackey, uh, welcome to the program.
5: Yes, thanks. Good to be talking to
0: you. So, that report that you published on the East Coast Corridor came out seven years ago. Um, can you explain why such a recommendation is important for the survival of Australian species?
5: Yes. You know, this, this idea, um, you know, we call it connectivity conservation, and, and it's this idea that a lot of animals move around a lot. You know, if you look at, like, our bird species, we've got 700-odd bird species, and about Mm -hmm. half of them are... They don't live in the one place all the time,
2: right? Yep.
5: They're like migrants, seasonal migrants, or they're kind of nomads, or they fly around chasing food with the seasons. You know, there are bird species like the swift parrot; They they overwinter on the mainland in Victoria, then they fly to Tasmania to breed. Mm -hmm. So part of the motivation for getting people to think about this is that we need to think about how many of our species move around in response to changing environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's kind of going to be accelerated with with climate change. Many species will have to move around to find more suitable climates. So I've got to think about how the landscape are linked up more. The conventional way Mm -hmm. of thinking about conservation management is we have our protected areas and then we flog the rest of the country. Well, you know, that's not good enough. If... we need to be thinking about the habitat value of, you know, the bush that's on private land, the bush that's in other land tenures, the bush that's on Aboriginal land. It's a matter of, I mean, we need protected areas and we need more of them. But we need to think about the land in in between the protected areas, and and how all that how all that bush can be can be cared for in a way that helps species going into the future.
0: All right. New South Wales has pioneered the first stage, which is a twelve hundred kilometre corridor. How are Victoria and Queensland catching up?
5: Yeah, well, this idea of connectivity corridors, you know, over the last last certainly the last seven years since that since that report, and even a bit before that report, there's been similar initiatives in many states. Yep. So in Western Australia, there's a fantastic initiative called Gondwana Link. Search for mm-hmm. Gondwana Link. Um, you'll see, uh, uh, you know, that's a fantastic connectivity conservation corridor in southwest Western Australia. Yep. Um, there's also some initiatives in um, in, in Victoria um, called BioLink and, and, and also in South Australia. These have had different origins. Some of them have been started by state government agencies, some have been started by conservation groups, mm-hmm. and some have been started by private landowners. But they've all kind of coalesced into the same kind of partnerships. So this Great Eastern Ranges one, you know, it started off in New South Wales. Uh, It had support from the New South Wales government, but it's really been, you know, driven by half a dozen community groups that are regionally based. And there's been an overarching organization which has tried to help facilitate all of that. So there's certainly a network in Victoria. There's a landowner down there by the name of Sophie Bicknell. Mm Um, who has a connectivity cons- conservation group down there. And uh, as we move up and down Victoria and New South Wales, uh, you know, we, we see these networks um, forming. So there's a lot of activity in Victoria already and also in Queensland.
0: Right, and I just want to kind of expand on what you were talking about, about how some of the land is, um, is private land. What is the process for making sure that the land can safely provide habitats for the animals? And how's, how's the response been from private landowners?
5: The, the Great Eastern Ranger, Eastern Ranger Initiative only is in existence because of the private landowners mm-hmm. who have voluntarily seen the, the conservation value of the bush that's on their land. Mm and had sought to collaborate their um, neighbors and other landowners and, and with state agencies to try and get kind of a, take a more regional approach, landscape-based approach to conservation. So, you know, people offer wonderful, of well, I've got a bit of bush on my property, but so what? Mm. But if you look at that patch of bush with all the other patches of bushes on your neighbor's property and see how that all links up, you know, in your bioregion and how that links up and connects to National parks and state forests mm-hmm. and these other land tenures that have got bush, you can see that even a small contribution from a small landowner, you know, can make a um, can make a big difference. Yeah, it can yeah. all add up.
0: And I guess, I guess the 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 big question is: Have you have you started getting any data in about how the animals are responding?
5: Well, sure. So there's this is one of the issues that that the regional groups are looking at. So in New South Wales, there's a group called. Um, Kosciuszko to coast, yep. which is the name for this coast from Mount Kosciuszko down to the coast, and uh, and a lot of those regional networks are um, you know monitoring the conservation work that they're doing. So I said it's a mix of private landowners of NGOs um, mm. like conservation NGOs like um, Trust for Nature and these and these various kind of organisations. So yeah, most of them are have got monitoring work in, and they're trying to actually you know measure the difference they're making.
0: Ah, oh, that's great. I guess, to to my mind, the the big win with something like this corridor is firstly, obviously, it, it is the purpose of it, which is to protect the diversity. But a secondary uh, win is that that the flora can also function there as a carbon sink. I'm just wondering if much effort has been put to to maintain plant and uh, tree diversity in these corridors.
5: Well, sure. I mean, the basic kind of, if you think of it, was sort of you know, when we talk about wildlife habitat, we're mainly talking about vegetation and native vegetation. Right. So the trees and the, and the understory and the ground cover, they're the really essential components. So when we talk about wildlife habitat, that's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an old saying, it's not the full story unless you've got the understory. Right. So as well as the trees, you need the understory, the shrubs, um, and you also need the ground cover, the native ground cover. Because you get different species occurring in all those plants, so there's a, you know, very close relationship between the plant biodiversity, you know, the diversity of the vegetation, and, yep. and the wildlife diversity.
0: Yep, yeah.
5: Um, so absolutely, you know, the plants are central to the story.
0: Yeah. Right now, as as I mentioned in your uh, introduction. Um, Professor Mackey. you specialise in the nexus between sustainable development and climate change. Um, I'm originally from Sydney, yep. where there's a massive amounts of money associated with development, um, and I was just wondering, in terms of what, how do you how do you approach the problem of population size negatively impacting biodiversity and our bi- ability to grapple with climate change? Yeah, well, yeah,
5: that's a good question. You know. Obviously, the more people you have, you know, the more food you need to feed people and yep. the more water you need. But, you know, it, it's so closely tied to people's lifestyles. Mm-hmm. You know, so the ecological footprint of an individual really depends upon the technology they have access to and the lifestyles that they have, you know, what their patterns of consumption are. You know, we did an awful lot of damage to the Australian environment when our, when our population was quite small. Right. You know, the first, the first hundred years of, you know, after the European invasion of Australia, that first hundred years, we really cleared a lot of bush, caused an awful lot of damage to biodiversity. Yep. And that was when the European population was quite tiny, yep. even compared to what it is now. So, you know, in the damage we're doing, like uh, with uh, coal seam gas mining, right? Yeah. The damaging. I mean, that's not being done by a lot of people. It's not like it's mm-hmm. not demand for domestic gas which is driving that, right? Yep. It's just corporations are selling the gas overseas so you know a lot of the environmental damage in australia has hasn't been so much driven by consumer demand from our cities as by just the fact we've you know kind of treated the the landscape as a as a giant quarry to kind of dig up and sell the issue for biodiversity conservation in australia isn't so much the size of our population but what we're choosing to do with our land
0: what you're saying is that there's not a direct correlation necessarily been between population size and reduction in the amount of biodiversity and arable land we have.
5: Yes, I. that's right. I mean, the more people you have, the more demand you have for natural resources mm. and the more demand you have for land for urbanisation. So I'm not saying that's not true. But when you look at the damage that's been done to the Australian environment, um, you know, we've decimated our temperate woodland to grow wheat and sheep and now other kind of commodity products. Yep. The industrial logging of our native forests, mm-hmm. coal, seam gas mining, etc. You know, this has really been the export earnings.
0: Yep, right? yep.
5: So, yeah, sure, Australians have an ecological footprint in Australia, but, you know, a lot of our ecological footprint on the Australian environment comes from the fact that we're kind of mining the country and yep. selling it for export earnings
0: yeah yeah uh,
5: so that's the other big factor you know we, we we need to be aware of when we talk about it's like with coal mining you know um, you know we we get most of our electricity from coal-fired power stations but we also export a hell of a lot we're yeah the world's second biggest
4: export of coal because okay, so it's Vivian Langford here I have been very interested in all this about biodiversity, but we've talked a lot with people about solutions because I, we had um, Professor David Lindenmeyer last week and he was talking about the recovery. Trajectory from 4% of warming where we're going towards 4% of warming now. We're not, all our commitments to Paris are not going to get us to a safe climate, but he talked about the recovery process. What do you, this wildlife corridor and so on, how do you think the biggest things we need to do, and we need to get governments behind this, to endorse a recovery plan so that not so many more species will go extinct?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing we have to do is to protect what we have. You know, so we can't just let what we have continue to be lost and degraded mm-hmm. in the hope that we can recover it all. So I don't want to abandon what's left of biodiversity in nature in Australia, you know, on the assumption that we can cover it, because that's not the case. And any kind of ecological restoration or ecological recovery really has to be built around, you know, the, the, the core of that restoration work has to be what we've got left and central highlands. Uh, those forests where Dave I works is a case in point. We're now down to less than two percent of the original old growth left. You know, mm. that's really got to be protected, and that can be the core out of which um, you know re- recovery can happen. Interestingly, when we talk about connectivity, conservation corridors. I mean, that's about trying to grow the conservation estate. How can we get better conservation outcomes on private land and all forms of land tenure, in addition to kind of protected areas? So, protected areas. Formally recognised protected areas are kind of the core of those cons- conservation connectivity corridors. Interestingly, under a previous Labor government, we actually had a national conservation corridor hmm. policy and program. And it was actually funds to support community groups and private landowners in developing and participating in connectivity conservation no. corridors like the Great Eastern Ranges.
0: When, when was that?
5: That was uh, under the Gillard right.
0: government
5: when when uh, Burke was minister for the environment okay so that would be fantastic if if the national government could bring that back the new south wales government um, a- actually successive new south wales government both labor and liberal until the current one had supported the great eastern range we need the state governments to be supporting these initiatives but it would be great if we if the national government you know resurrected this kind of national corridor program yeah it, it was a great policy
0: yeah Okay. So finally, I'd just like to take an opportunity to thank you, not just for your time, but also for the work that you do. Um, I think Australian wildlife is a national asset, and there's just not enough being done to conserve it. That's too often it takes a back seat to uh, short-term commercial interests. So for anyone listening out there who, that feels really passionate about that, what, what's the single most important thing? I noticed you brought up um, their particular lifestyle. What's one concrete Choice that they can make to, to, to improve the situation.
5: Well, there's a few things I think individuals can do. I mean, for a start, we can all stop using plastic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's just choices. I mean, because uh, we talked about terrestrial, you know, biodiversity, yep. but in terms of marine biodiversity, we've really got a crisis when it comes to marine mm-hmm. plastic. And um, so that's something I'm really reminding everyone to do is to really, really have a have a close look at how you can. Um, reduce your plastic consumption. Something everyone can do is write to their minister, you know ministers and their and their elected representatives and tell them that biodiversity is important. That's to the local government, state government, the national government. I mean, they take notice of letters that citizens write, so you know it's not a waste of time. I think it's really important. And and I also think people you know I would encourage people to join um, and support environmental groups who are working to. Um, to um, help protect
0: their So There's many groups doing great work, I think. Great, great. Well, thank you you so much for your time, Professor Mackey. Pleasure. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye.
4: Tim Pearson is dedicated to flying fox research. We're going to find out how climate change is affecting an animal that he calls an environmental superstar. So welcome, Tim. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. We heard in the previous creature feature on the radio how bats are very important as pollinators. Could you tell us in a bit of detail how they do that when they flap out of their colonies at night? Flying
1: foxes are an amazing animal. Of course, commonly they're known as fruit bats, but the species we have on the east coast of Australia, the grey-headed flying fox and the black flying fox, probably about 80% of their diet is actually nectar as opposed to fruit. They do eat some fruit anyone who's been anywhere near a fig tree when it's fruiting would be familiar with the bats in the tree squabbling over the fruit and of course what they do there is they chew chop the fruit and then bit the uh, seeds out and they can of course fly quite long distances to do that so they don't just drop the seeds at the base of the tree more importantly though the main part of their diet is nectar and particularly the nectar out of a lot of gum trees, a lot of the hardwood eucalypts on the East Coast. And as they're licking the nectar out of the gum tree flowers, all that fur on their body gets covered in pollen. So they can carry a massive load of pollen. And you add that to the fact that they'll easily fly up to 50 kilometres a night to go and look for food and forage. They can carry a massive load of pollen a long distance. So they're not pollinating the gum tree right next to the one that's there. They're flying to a stand of similar trees 30 kilometres away and pollinating there. And that's really important for our gum trees for genetic diversity and
4: health. Look, climate change will force migrations of many species and at least the bats can fly and they may have to fly further south, you know, to get away from the heat. But you see conservation areas being linked up across farms, for example, is that desirable? And given that they can pollinate, do you think we should value them a lot more or know a little bit more about... Why you know we should preserve their habitat?
1: Yeah, the the idea of having more and more areas of um, habitat, not just for flying foxes but for all our native animals, is absolutely critical. And linking those areas together is also critical for anything that can't fly, like a flying fox. And the flying foxes not only fly out those long distances each night, but they migrate. We've actually radio tracked them or satellite tracked them flying over a week or two, 1,500 kilometres to where a stand of trees, where some trees are flowering. So for the flying foxes, to a certain extent, they can actually um, go over gaps we create, but a lot of the other animals can't. One of the things that does happen, of course, is the more we fragment the environment and our forests, the more critical flying foxes become as pollinators because the other animals that do pollination are insects and some of the birds just don't do those things. Yeah, so for anything like a koala, of course, it can't sort of fly even five kilometers or so you know, it needs to link up areas
4: another f- aspect of the flying fox that i heard about from your youtube video which i recommend to listeners it's called no me no trees i heard that you're very interested in how they communicate and you have studied that a bit and i'd like to know how does a mother bat you know when they fly out at night how does she find the the pup when she comes back to a tree the
1: Flying fox communication, to most people, is just this cacophony of noise, but it's actually a whole lot of different vocalisation. They're all individual. They can tell each other's voices apart. So when the mother flying fox flies back into the camp in the morning, in the early hours of the morning, she circles around calling, and all the pups in the trees call back, and the mother can actually pick her individual pup out. She'll land next to it and then smell it. I uh, give it a good sniff to make sure it's the right one. But yes, but basically they just call to each other and they can tell each other's voice.
4: Um, one of the first things that got me interested in bats being threatened by climate change was and I heard of an event, I think it was in Queensland, where there was a mass falling out of the sky of bats during a heatwave. And I wondered, is this a freak event and how likely is this to be the future for bats?
1: Well, it, it's one of those things... Flying foxes, in general, uh, extreme heat will kill them. It, it's around 45 degrees centigrade or so, and they start dropping out of trees just from heat death. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon. It, it was first recorded in 1792 in uh-huh. Parramatta uh-huh. as a mass death of flying foxes and parrots. But what's happening um, is two things. One is that because of climate change extreme Extreme heat is getting more frequent and more extreme. And the second thing that's making it worse is that because we're destroying forest, the flying foxes are roosting in more and more unsuitable places, like they're going into urban areas more. Um, some of the good camps are in densely timbered gullies, and the flying foxes climb down in the trees into shadier, cooler areas and survive the heat wave. So you get this double whammy of they're in less appropriate areas, um, in Melbourne, for instance, along uh, Yarra Bend there, just in open forest, and you've got more extreme heat, and the combination can kill um, at times tens of thousands of animals.
4: Is climate change affecting uh, flying foxes in other ways?
1: Yeah, one of the other things we've seen, and we, which is fairly recent, and this affects a lot of other animals too, the eucalypts especially, the hotter, drier weather means they either don't flower at all or don't flower particularly profusely, and that can lead to starvation for a lot of animals. Last year, last mating season, um, we actually saw for the first time um, a lot of eucalypts failing to flower, and it hit just when the mothers were giving birth. Starvation meant that they stopped lactating and they abandoned their pups en masse. Early estimates say we possibly lost about half the breeding of the grey-headed flying fox last season
4: yeah well this is tragic and i what's more tragic to me is that we don't really know about it in australia you know we know about koalas being threatened they're kind of they're called iconic species and i know there's quite a bit of negativity around fruit bats people think they carry disease and they're vampires and they're you know they've got a bad literary history really i suppose but but it's not that that's forcing them to become a threatened species. What, what, what do you think the worst thing that are happening to them that we could in fact change?
1: But the biggest thing for pretty much every native species in Australia is habitat destruction. On the east coast we're still chopping down forests at an absolutely insane rate. We let, uh, in both New South Wales and Victoria, um, our forest corporations let regrowth get to the, just the stage where it's getting productive and then take it out again. Mm-hmm. Our land clearing laws are changing so that we're allowing more and more bush to be cleared.
4: Well, recently the Great Barrier Reef, someone put a money value on it. I think it was over $50 billion. I presume that's in tourist trade and so on. Uh, I heard someone on the radio this morning actually praising that, that that at least lets us know what we're talking about. And maybe in our culture we've got now, do you think we need to put... Like a money value, like all of these things are leading to the same point that we need to stop the land clearing, we need to nurture these wildlife corridors, we need to continue to create opportunities for biodiversity. But you think it's um, some new... Public approach or some new government policy needs to take over.
1: Putting a value on things like that—it's—it's it, um, been—it's it, a concept that's been around for a while. Um, that, you know, putting a value on ecosystem services, and the idea is to try and work out—you know—what it would cost. You know, what it would cost us to provide fresh water if we didn't have um, and rainfall I and mean, mm. filtering it through for ourselves. That's come because of the idea that the only way our society values anything is if it's got a monetary cost. Ultimately, the only way we can really save the environment is for government policy to change, and that will only change when enough people push the politicians, when the politicians believe there's enough opinion backing it. And that's the only way a politician will do anything, really.
4: Yeah, well, that's a political answer and, and we, we need that. And, and, you know, you're seeing it with the Great Barrier Reef now and the Adani mine. It's an almighty battle. Um, climate change is forcing everything towards a point. I saw in your YouTube video that the cost of pollinating, if we, we got rid of all the flying foxes and we had to hand pollinate the trees, I mean, that, the, that would be billions of dollars, wouldn't it? So. You know, we, we, we need to think of it like that, I think, what, what the value is.
1: Yeah, when, one of the things, um, I do a lot of education talks, and the biggest thing we hear time and time again is people saying, I didn't know that, they've just got no idea that our flying foxes are native to Australia, that gray-headed flying fox is yep. endemic, it's not found anywhere else, they're not feral, they're not pests. Um, and they're a critical, what we call a keystone species, which is named after, of course, the keystone on the top of the, a stone arch. You pull yeah. that out, everything else collapses. Well, Pretty much the forests of the East Coast depend on flying foxes for their survival.
4: Fantastic. Well, that that is a good point to end on with the keystone. So thank you very much, Tim. I've really enjoyed talking to you and um, I hope that listeners will really take note and watch your YouTube, which is No Me, No Trees. All right then, thank you very much. That was Tim Pearson, who's a Flying Fox researcher. Uh, Professor Jean-Marc Hero is from Griffith University, but at the moment he is in London. There's a photo on Jean-Marc's web page of him with a miner's lamp on his forehead and a T-shirt saying, Save the Frogs. He's a conservation biologist specialised in reptiles and amphibians. Among his many publications, I like this one, it's called Engineering a Future for Amphibians Under Climate Change. So welcome to the Beyond Zero show, Jean-Marc. Tell us what it's like at the conference in London.
3: Very little on climate change, which is disappointing because we really need to focus on this problem now. In the Anthropocene, which is the a serious moment in the history of planet Earth where we're experiencing massive declines and extinctions in species around the world, and so we're... Many scientists are just in the crisis situation of actually trying to save single species Mm. by keeping them in captivity and breeding them in in captivity. Uh, And these are sort of immediate actions that we need to take. But we really need to understand a lot better how amphibians and reptiles are likely to be impacted by climate change in the future.
4: Yes, well, that's what I'd like you to tell us. You know, In the whole biosphere that they're in, what is the future for Australian snakes, for example, and frogs?
3: it's not looking good in the context of we've had a history of the last 200 years of habitat destruction and fragmentation and now we have this new very serious impact of climate change we've also had the feral animals which have had a big impact on a lot of species as well so we've we've just keep accumulating more Threats to amphibians and reptiles And less solutions
4: I wonder if climate change is Endangering these Amphibians and reptiles more than Other species, are they especially vulnerable?
3: They they are particularly vulnerable Because of Amphibians I guess more so In some respects because they're Dependent on both temperature and Rainfall and climate change We have very well documented increasing global temperatures. So temperature is a real threat, and that's affecting reptiles and amphibians equally, in a sense. It's a bigger threat. The temperature is a bigger threat to reptiles because they're temperature-dependent, like amphibians, but their activity is mostly diurnal. And so, therefore, the very hot temperatures in the middle of the day, which are going to be increasing, will decrease the amount of activity or hours of activity that they have. Mm Amphibians, on the other hand, are much more nocturnal. They're still affected by temperature increases, but they're also very strongly affected by rainfall. The predictions for rainfall response to climate change are much more difficult to understand and much more difficult to predict. So we have increases in extreme events, so a lot more torrential rainfall, which we're already experiencing around the world over short periods, and then longer droughts. So obviously both of these effects will have negative impacts on amphibians, but how much they're going to affect amphibians is, is much more difficult to predict.
4: Well, when I was researching this, I was really surprised to find how famous Australia really is for reptiles. It's very rich in reptile species, and I wonder if you could just describe some of the fascinating diversity.
3: Well, the reptiles in Australia are very diverse we have over a thousand species with about 783 species of lizards 209 species of snakes and 32 turtle species and, and of course our two crocodilians the freshwater and the saltwater crocs so very diverse it's unusual in that we have so many lizards usually the number of snakes relative to the number of lizards is higher so Um, We do have lots of snakes, 209 species is a hell of a lot of snakes out there, but uh, we have well over 780 species of lizards, so extremely diverse. and Many of these lizards are dependent on temperatures, so increasing temperatures will increase their hours of restrictions, which means they have less time to be active and, and out in the environment, feeding and reproducing and doing those things they need to do. The snakes are primarily, are are really a top predator in the Australian ecosystems, and that's why we have so many species, and they're very dependent, of course, on all of the lizards and the frogs as their prey items, and and birds and, and mammals as well, of course. So the snakes are really key predators in the Australian ecosystem, and so as we see declines in other species, then the snakes will be impacted as well, just by their position in the food web where there's less food available for them. We've already seen widespread declines of snakes throughout Australia and it's now really difficult to actually go out and find some of these amazing snakes that we have and in particular some of the most venomous snakes in Australia. So, you know, I drive around a lot out in western Queensland looking for these brown snakes and we just don't find them anymore. They're they're disappearing from the Australian landscape.
4: Well, I think a lot of people would find it hard to shed a tear for the brown snake or especially the extreme venomous snakes which have caused such terror to people but i think we're uneducated in how they Perform these ecosystem services that we keep hearing about. And I know that's an abstraction, but what what does it really mean? You said they're the top predators, they eat the lizards, but how does this affect the whole ecosystem and ultimately
3: us? Well, each component of the ecosystem is dependent on every other component. So if you remove one component from the ecosystem, the entire system collapses. And so we would see, you know, um, if we remove the snakes and the amphibians, then we would expect to have far more diversity in insects, which are, of course, going to directly impact humans, both as vectors of disease, but also as impacting crops, you know, Mm. directly feeding on crops. So we definitely don't want to have a decrease in amphibians. So the food webs are intricate systems. They're very well designed to manage and control all populations. And if you disrupt those populations, then you're likely to have negative impacts, particularly on food and agriculture in Australia.
4: What would it really be like if, if the amphibians, which looks like they are very endangered, if they start to fade out, what and, and mosquitoes and um, you know tropical insects are in fact coming further down, their range is going further down with climate change? What What's the uh, horror scenario you can actually see?
3: Well, as you said, the amphibian populations disappearing would affect the invertebrates amphibians were the first vertebrates to come onto the land out of the oceans about 350 million years ago and they came into a landscape that was rich and full of invertebrates insects primarily of course and so they developed the ability to hop so that they could feed on those insects. So the entire ecology and evolution of 350 million years of amphibians is to learn how to be really good feeders on invertebrates. And these invertebrates, of course would multiply and if they didn't have amphibians to control them Mm -hmm. and 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 reptiles reptiles are smashing them in the daytime and the amphibians are smashing them at night so reptiles and amphibians together are really good for controlling invertebrate insect populations so we would certainly expect to see an increase in those species and groups if we removed amphibians and reptiles from the equation I think
4: there are are some adaptations that are happening as well, and I've read that uh, reptile eggs will change sex if they're in warm sand. I wonder why this is. Does it help them survive, and what are the implications of this?
3: Now, this is um, temperature-dependent sex determination, and it's one of the sort of key, uh, I guess, unique features of, of turtles, crocodiles, and some reptiles even the agamids the dragons that you see around the east coast of Australia the water dragons and things so these animals lay their eggs in specific environments that will determine the sex of their offspring so in some species if it's warmer they're they're males and in in other species if it's warmer they're actually females but what it means is is these species are very finely tuned to specific Temperatures in the environment in which they're laying their eggs. So let's take an example, a simple example, which is a turtle, which crawls up the beach and lays its eggs in the dunes. It lays its eggs at a certain depth, and the depth determines the temperature. And so, if they're laying their eggs at exactly the same temperatures, but the external temperatures are becoming warmer, then the eggs become warmer, and so you get a shift in your population towards that sex. So. Let's say they're all females at higher temperatures, so you would have all females in your population. So these sex biases are, are a problem with the changing temperatures. With some, for, um, something like a tuatara, which is these amazing ancient reptiles found in New Zealand, they don't reach reproductive maturity until they're 40 years old. And so they come back to the same beach in 40 years' time there may be a difference of one or two degrees in temperature, Mm. which we're expecting. So it will dramatically affect their population sex ratios. How that's going to affect the populations, of course, in the future is, is complex, but we would expect a negative impact because you can't have... A strong bias to one sex. Mm. It's well, an amazing phenomenon in in biology that all it, all species merge to that fifty fifty sex ratio.
4: Just wanted to tell you, um, when our children were young, we always used to have tadpoles, and I think watching them turn into frogs, seeing metamorphosis, was one of the wonders of the world for them. And. It is to me too and we used to see films at the museum about field trips. It looked like so much fun, it just looked so interesting to be going out in the field and I wonder, you and your students, you're gathering scientific data all the time, how is this helping save the frog?
3: Well we need to understand frogs in their natural environment so that we can see how they are affected by their microclimate and by their general climatic Conditions, So that takes a lot of work in the field to be following frogs around, measuring their temperatures, measuring the temperature of their environment and seeing how they respond to changes in temperature in their environment and that will then give us an idea of how they're likely to respond to climate change. The most important thing we can learn from this is what kind of diversity of water bodies we need for amphibians and we can then mimic those conditions in the future. The best way, of course, to do that is to just preserve larger areas so that it has more microhabitats and more microclimates available to the animals that live in it. And the Queensland government has done some really nice predictive planning of the future for climate change so that they've added large areas to their existing national parks to extend those national parks into areas where we think will be more suitable in the future for the species that are currently living in a national park. So we're providing adjacent areas so that animals can move in the landscape because this is really the only way that we can naturally save species from extinction from climate change is giving them a variety of habitats and microhabitats so that they can move in the landscape and breed and live in at least some components of that changing landscape. And so it's a really exciting time in the sense that we, we need to predict as quick as we can where these animals are going to move to and then we need to preserve those areas and uh, other than that we can then go to uh, enhancing existing areas so that's another whole field of research that we need to work on.
4: We've been just talking to Professor Jean-Marc Hero uh, from Griffith University A lot of the greenhouse gases that cause climate disruptions arise from land clearing and logging And it just so happens that if we keep and extend the tree cover and call it a carbon sink, we might also be giving a chance to survive for many wild animals. Now, I've come across a group called the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. It's a new model of not-for-profit conservancy, and it stands outside the national park system. Um, I first heard about it in a, a quarterly essay by Tim Flannery. Now, Australian Wildlife Conservancy manages properties over 3.8 million hectares and employs field ecologists who establish large areas of uh, which are free of feral animals and uh, livestock, I gather. Our guest is Dr. John Konoski, who is a conservation ecologist with the AWC, where he is the National Science and Conservation Manager. So, welcome, John. Thank you very much, Vivian. Tell us what your work involves.
2: Well, the work of the Conservancy uh, is, as you said, we are a large national landowner. Our mission is the conservation of Australian wildlife and their habitats. And so we purchase or uh, acquire land or go into partnership um, with uh, government and other organisations to protect uh, high-value conservation land. And we implement uh, direct action to address the threats that many of our wildlife face at the moment. So we do, as you said, we do a lot of work uh, eradicating feral cats and foxes. Uh, They are the primary current threats to Australian mammals and quite a number of other birds that uh, dwell on the ground where cats and foxes can can take them. lizards and that sort of thing. We have a significant team of people who live on properties and do that on-ground work, managing fire, managing the feral animals uh, managing the weeds. And we also have a staff of about 50 ecologists, which is quite a bit of uh, intellectual health, and uh, our scientists are looking for the information that will help our land managers uh, do their job better.
4: Yes, that's what I liked reading about your work, is that a lot of uh, PhD students and so on can do their research on all these properties And there's so many things to be done, I think, monitoring up there. And I'm interested especially in your partnership with Graziers. The Beyond Zero Emissions research found that cutting the national herd, for example, to sustainable levels would greatly reduce the impact on climate. And I'd like you to tell us about that partnership with Kimberley cattle owners and how it will protect the biodiversity around Charlie River.
2: Sure. So quite large areas of Australia are pastoral leases and The terms of those leases very much include some level of cattle grazing, and that ranges from very intensive cattle production enterprises through to a few cattle in the back paddock. Now, AWC has acquired a number of partial leases ourselves, which we have largely destocked, and sometimes we run a small herd, a small commercial herd, to satisfy the... Conditions of the lease in the Kimberley. Recently, we have a partnership with a significant pastoralist up there. Who the benefit to us is that that pastoralist can help us manage the cattle that we have to run on selected areas of our properties up there. That's you know that's their bread and butter. It's not ours. They can focus on doing that that well. At the same time, they've removed cattle from the really sensitive areas that we've found out through our research are really important for the uh, native wildlife. So it's a, it's essentially a win-win where country that's good for wildlife is being um, managed properly. We're doing monitoring of the outcomes and doing research around things like impacts of feral cats and how best to manage them and the pastoral gets an enterprise that's more sustainable. I'm
4: very glad to hear that because I, I've done a few programs on land use and I've interviewed cattle farmers, for example, up in Queensland to talk about the feral pests as you know, absolute obsession for them and also I got the impression from scientists that a lot of land is really being flogged. You know, it's not being managed well. The, too many cattle, when the drought comes, they just die and uh, or they become skeletal. It's really too bad you know it's not well managed so this sounds like a good way forward and another aspect of climate change though is fire you know we we can make huge emissions when we have a wildfire and you have a project about fire management minimize wildfires but I imagine that also helps animals survive tell us about that
2: yeah well it's quite interesting because we're actually we're actually doing a lot of burning in that project but we're burning at the right time of year so Northern Australia, uh, it's very, it's, it's mostly savanna, so it's grass underneath uh, scattered eucalypt trees. It's a very fire-prone environment. You get an intense wet season, the grass grows, and you get a long hot dry season. Fire not managed; it'll be started by lightning or, or by arson. And our indigenous people have managed fire in that country for tens of thousands of years. And so, essentially, we're getting back to managing the country the way they did, lighting a, a lot of little small fires in the in the cooler part of the year. The fires aren't very intense, so the emissions that they uh, release uh, are, are, are relatively low, and what that does, and what we've been able to do in the Kimberley, and in fact across all our northern Australian properties, is by that prescribed early burning, reduce the extent of the, the really hot, big emission late dry season wildfires by half, so that's a really big change, and not only is that good for reducing emissions, but clearly there's wildlife, wildfire is quite devastating um, when it's repeated on the vegetation and it's particularly devastating for small mammals uh, what it does is remove the grass cover from huge areas, we're talking about a million hectares of, of country burn, there was one wildfire in the Kimberley last year of that size mm. and you know if you're a little native bandicoot or a quoll or a, or a native uh, mouse and you stick your head up and there's no cover for miles around then you're very vulnerable to feral cats and Research that we've done, AWC has done, up in the Kimberley and in Cape York, shows that feral cats, they really look out for those fires. They 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 somehow know where there's been a, a wildfire, and they'll travel from, for kilometres around and sort of concentrate on that burnt area and inflict uh, heavy predation on the native mammals. So mm-hmm. by controlling wildfire through this sort of essentially mimicking the Aboriginal stewardship of the land, We're having really multiple benefits for for carbon, for the environment.
4: I read about that uh, with the cats. I read one a PhD student, whose research was on one of your properties. He put little cameras on the feral cats, and he found that they killed more native animals on that cleared land uh, than if it was covered. And so that's another argument against land clearing, as far as I'm concerned. But I'd like you to tell us what strategies AWC has. Uh, against feral animals, other strategies.
2: Sure. Well, so in the nor- in the north of Australia, we do this landscape management. So we've got properties that, you know, they're, they're, they're half a million hectares in size, they're huge. And so the main thing we're trying to do there is retain the grass cover throughout the year. So that is a combination of destocking the, the really important areas, you know, actually most of our properties, um, mostly to stop, um, and then managing fire, as I just explained, we aim very much to reduce the extent of wildfire, and that combination of land management reduces the predation pressure on on small mammals by about an order of magnitude. So it's quite quite large, and we have had a significant uptick uh, on our Kimberley properties. In small mammals, whereas elsewhere across the north, the trend is really the other way. Yes. The, other main, the other main thing we do in southern Australia is we eradicate feral cats and foxes from very large areas. So we have five uh, sanctuaries where there's ranging between, you know, 300 hectares and 8,000 hectares, where we, we've completely eradicated feral cats and foxes. One of them is an island in shark bay the rest of them are what we call mainland islands that is they're protected by a by a fence once we get the cats and foxes out and we reintroduce the really threatened mammals back to those areas and we've had really tremendous success with those those reintroductions. so we've got 11 threatened species of threatened mammals things like the bilby uh, some of the betongs, bridal nalco wallaby we protect quite a substantial proportion of those animals in these uh, protected areas, because essentially they're they're what Australia was before Europeans came in. So yeah, we that and it's yeah I could talk talk for yeah, for hours about I that because we do a lot of work in that space. Yeah,
4: yeah, well, mentioning islands, I've been reading a little bit about conservation biology and trying to work out what the trend is, where it's going. And my impression is that in the past we've had agriculture, you know, in Dedicated good fertile parks, and then islands of conservation, like national parks. But as the species will need to move in response to climate pressure, we'll have to integrate these two groups of, or islands of land, agriculture and conservation. We can't have them separated anymore, I think. And even I was reading, uh, there's a convention on biological diversity which is committing us to ecosystems integrated with other land use. And they want at least 17% of Australia by 2020 to be dedicated in that way. And I imagine that's in wildlife corridors or linked up land. And how do you interest your business partners in this sort of project? Something what you've already established, but now linking the areas.
2: Yeah, well, I guess that is a bit like our example um, in the Kimberley where we're working with the pastoralists. The the reality is, as I said, the pastoralists are really uh, a major landowner. In that part of Australia, and so we're looking for a for an outcome that benefits conservation and, and benefits them, and and so the rally is that the the outcome for wildlife there will be that the creeks are protected, and so things like wildlife corridors will be established, degraded creeks will be restored, the animals and the birds will be able to re, re uh, colonise those areas, and and as you say, uh, move between the uh, protected areas. But it, the, the, the the linkage thing. Uh, we've got to a stage really with, you know, with the Anthropocene that particularly say for the threatened mammals, uh, in southern Australia, the reality is that there's quite a large number that simply cannot cope with any level of fox or cat predation. They're just, they're absolutely not adapted to those predators. And so we, we have to, we have to take the, the hand of nature there and we have to design population strategies that move around, for example, bilbies or numbats between these large areas, these large sanctuary, and uh, that, that can be informed by genetic um, information.
4: Look, Australia has national parks. We've got considerable lands uh, like yours and then lands under indigenous uh, management, yep. private sort of protection. But we still have over 1,000 animals at risk of extinction when I last read about it, and climate change is just another stressor. So what government policies would you like to see to enable greater amounts of conservation? We haven't heard actually how you finance your projects, but, but government definitely should play a role. What, what role do you want them to play? Well, um,
2: just to, you, to one of your points you raised there, we are primarily supported by, um, by donations. We are, we are a not-for-profit, so a charity essentially. And that model is very good for conservation in that you have to perform to keep attracting support from from our from our donor base. So, it actually is very that particular model of private conservation has a very strong incentive to perform, whereas the government model uh, has traditionally been you know you reserve the land that's great that stops it from being cleared, but very often that's the, the that's the end of the story apart from. You know, sort of minor management, and we're really focused on a model of active management of our lands, informed by good science. So we put a lot of effort into just understanding what's going on with the with the animals and the plants in our reserves. If something's going wrong, we, we want to know about it, and we want to be able to uh, manage it. Uh, in terms of the government, um, I mean, government does support. Uh, NGOs largely through policy settings there was um, important support for private conservation through the National Reserve Strategy there where our government put in some money um, when, when people bought land in areas that weren't um, well conserved so that sort of policy is, is often quite helpful
4: That was Dr John Kanowski from the Australian Wildlife Conservation speaking to us from where are you John? Uh, I'm up in Cairns. Cairns, ok, thank you very much
2: Thanks, Vivian.
0: Bye. Right, so that was the second part of our uh, creature feature, and I'd like to thank uh, Andy on panel, Vivian for conducting the interviews, and Teddy Bourgeois. Um That was uh, our guests today: was Professor Brendan Mackey, Doctor John Kanowski, Professor John Mark Hero, and the Batman Tim Pearson. Um, if you want to go out there and feel invigorated by this um, this this show that we've done, and really. Sink your fingers into the, into the dirt. There's a lot of organizations around Victoria that would love more volunteers. Um, quick three, because we're running out of time conservationvolunteers.com.au, environmentvictoria.org.au, and finally, www.trustfornature.org.au. Thank you very much.
4: Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans.